Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 78, Cyborg Buddhas and Techno-Utopian Pure Lands. Professor James Hughes, bioethicist, transhumanist, and longtime Buddhist practitioner, continues his conversation with us, this time discussing how the radical advances in technology and science could help turn our world into a Buddha realm, a realm where awakening is encouraged and is easier to attain. This is part two of a three-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. One of the, the arguments that first came to my mind when I, when I first was exposed to the transhumanist thoughts was, huh, I wonder if using the metaphysics from the Tibetan tradition, the, the different realms, you know, the six different realms, I wonder if we'll just be creating you know, something that looks similar to what the Tibetans called the God realms. And that it's, you know, in those realms, it's, it's said it's, it's harder to wake up because there's, there's less of a motivation or an inspiration to do so. And yet there's also a lot of teachings about how it's easier to wake up in those realms in certain cases. So I was wondering if, if you could respond to that, that possible criticism from the Buddhist side. Well, I, I've written about that as the parallel. There, there is a field of transhumanist thought called abolitionism, hmm. and this emerges out of utilitarian uh, philosophers in England who are transhumanists and who have argued that if the philosophic goal of the good is to reduce suffering and um, have the greatest happiness for the greatest number, then we should do that through neurotechnology. We should all jack up our pleasure centers to the maximum possible point. Well, that for us obviously raises some interesting dilemmas because on the one hand, you could jack up pleasure in a way that would be totally distracting and disabling. You could have the land of the lotus eaters kind of outcome. Mm. And um, that would be kind of the God realm where, you know, it's a no one can think a dharmic uh, thought because they're all having so much pleasure all the time. On the other hand, you could make people incredibly mentally resilient and dynamically joyful and happy. Um, uh, you know, some complement between these technologies and ordinary kinds of wisdom and experience. So, and when we see people, when we look at the the actual distribution of happiness among people, you can rank people on a one to ten scale. The people who are tens in terms of their ordinary daily level of happiness, they're very productive in their lives. They're very engaged. They have a lot of friends and relationships. They're not people who are living lives of the lotus eaters. You know, those, you know, if you're a methamphetamine addict, yes. If you're mm. a heroin addict, yes. But people who are ordinarily the most happy among us, no. And so the question is, can we figure out how to differentiate those two kinds of states and develop technologies which allow us to get that, to that dynamic happiness state as opposed to the addicted uh, pleasure-seeking state? And in terms of Buddhist philosophy, that's the difference between, for instance, Buddha realms, which is in Mahayana, the bodhisattvas are attempting to create realms which are utopian, but at the same time uh, encourage and support a dharmic practice versus the god realms, which are utopian but discourage a dharmic practice. Oh, that's a great distinction. I just started to think about that one, but but when you when you make it clear in those in those terms, it just makes so much more sense that there is that that strong distinction there. Yeah, that's great. It's a very important distinction, and uh, I'm very worried about the prospects that neurotechnologies will enable 
even more powerful and destructive forms of addiction than methamphetamine and heroin in the future. Uh, at the same time, our growing neurotechnology armamentum are allowing us to think about how we might cure addiction. We might be able to go in and, and fix the parts of the brain that get broken when people get addicted to drugs or block them in the first place. That's a great point. So are these the kind of things you touch on in, in the book you're working on now, Cyborg Buddha? Well, the structure of Cyborg Buddha it really started um, out of a series of questions. One question was about sex. I had written about the future of sex and uh, reflecting on my monastic experience and uh, uh, whether sex was such an essential part of human experience that we might never transcend it. You know, with my mostly male transhumanist colleagues, <clears throat> they can imagine translating themselves into uh, you know, nanotech-constructed android bodies and living on the surface of Mars, but they can't ever conceive of themselves being female. You know, they can't ever they can't ever conceive of themselves being genderless or neuter or something like that. So you know the notion that gender and sexuality is just such a central part of our self, our construction of self. Mm -hmm. That I really began to think about this, and I thought about it in terms of you know if you were a person who was trying to accomplish some task and you were distracted by sexual feelings and you had uh, the control over your brain so that you could just reach in and turn off your sexual feelings for a while, what effect would it have in the first place? Would it diminish your experience of life? You know, is it true that that eros kind of enlivens everything in our lives, provides spice? If it's And if that wasn't true, would you ever have any motivation to turn it back on? If you were able to completely, just as an act of choice, sublimate all of your erotic energy into other life accomplishments, writing books or playing music or whatever, would there ever be any reason to want to go back to being engaged in the you know, often quite tragic <laughs> affairs of the heart? Mm. And I, I, I don't know. I'm still not sure about that. But... That began to get me thinking about vice and virtue and uh, our ability to control them. And so, when I looked at the Buddhist literature, I'd always been kind of uh, skittish of virtue theory. When I looked at the Buddhist literature, it immediately struck me that the paramitas, the six or ten paramita uh, structure, was a Buddhist virtue theory. Sure. That would allow me to begin talking about these different categories. And that's kind of evolved now because there's this field of positive psychology, which is um, Marty Zelligman and a bunch of other Western psychologists who have developed, I think, an even more robust uh, set of categories around the virtues so that you can talk about virtues that some of the Buddhist virtues are very strong on meditation and things like that, but um, a little bit weaker on things like loyalty. You know, loyalty is a virtue that occurs in a lot of um, ethics around the world, but Buddhists tend to be more universalistic, so we don't emphasize loyalty as much. So, at any rate, the positive psychologists have a structure that I've begun to adopt as the structure for my book. So, I'm talking about the six virtues and how they can be enhanced by these technologies and oh, then yeah. what the ramifications will be for the future of the self and then for the future of religion. Nice, nice. So so how do they help with the virtues? <laughs> I mean you you've already mentioned it. I mean you've already mentioned kind of the wisdom aspect of how that could be aided. Are there the ways in which generosity and I can't remember all the parameters obviously but are there ways <laughs> those are clearly uh, impacted by by some of this stuff? Right. Well, you think about the, in terms of the virtues, there, there's things like uh, self-discipline. Mm -hmm. um, so, in terms of the Buddhist path, shila, or, you know, the control over your 
um, greed, hatred, and ignorance, you know, that your self-discipline over some of your behaviors, what is called in the in the positive psychology literature, temperance, mm. uh, which includes things like forgiveness and mercy, humility, but, but especially prudence and self-regulation. So there's an enormous amount of research on what kinds of brain structures and neurochemicals and, and life situations um, threaten our ability to control our behavior and which kinds enhance it. So, for instance, there's a great study out just a couple months ago that um, your brain uses more sugar when it ex- exercises self-control. So, when you put somebody in a situation where they um, have to resist a temptation, if they um, have been sugar-deprived, they can't resist it as well as if they have a bunch of sugar in their brain. So, that begins to suggest there, that there are ways to support uh, our self-control, our ability to resist certain kinds of temptations. So, when I talked about the ways of creating vaccines for drugs, so if, if people have some kind of overpowering gambling addiction or sex addiction or uh, um, addiction to a drug, we're figuring out the dopamine circuits that moderate that behavior, and we're beginning to figure out how we can change those permanently or temporarily so that people don't feel those kinds of cravings. So that's one example in terms of temperance. In terms of compassion and kindness, generosity, those kinds of things, we're, we have a growing body of literature about the neurochemistry and the brain, the, the parts of the brain that are implicated in people being able to understand that other people have feelings to begin with, you know, that autism, for instance, and high-functioning high Asperger's syndrome, um, that's a, 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 a dysfunction of our ability to form a mental picture of other people's feelings in the first place. So that's a pretty fundamental problem, and we're trying to figure out if there are therapies for that. And we know that it's partly implicated with mirror neurons, which are neurons that respond to other people's pleasure or pain. They're the kind of neurons that make it so that when somebody else smiles, you smile, or somebody else yawns, you yawn, you're responding to other people. And then what you do with that information, whether you feel you know, like you should help other people or not, that kind of psychopathology or sociopathology, that uh, fundamental level of compassion or empathy, we're beginning to understand what drives that. And there are chemicals like oxytocin, which is a chemical that's released when people fall in love or have an orgasm or when mothers nurse babies. And this is a trust uh, chemical. So experiments have been done where uh, people have been surreptitiously dosed with oxytocin and they're more likely to form friendships and cooperative associations, bonds with other people. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that we're already doing this. We're doing this, a lot of the, the prospect of what I'm talking about is already being done on a therapeutic level for people who are in the, the bottom, you know, third uh, standard deviation of behavior. So people who have extreme anger disorder or people who have, ex- have chemical addictions, or people who um, are really psychopathological, we f- are figuring out what kinds of therapies can be used to treat those pathologies. But the question is, what about for the average person? Is there a way for the average person to uh, take advantage of our growing understanding of the brain and our, the drugs and the, and the devices that we're going to be developing so that they can become more conscientious, kinder, um, exercise better self-control, be more patient. And I think that the, all of those things are coming along the, uh, pretty quickly. But let me give you an example of, um, of the device end of this, because the neurotechnology end of this is still pretty crude, but the device end is developing as well. Mm. I, I've been overweight for years, 
And um, I try to maintain control over my uh, my diet by keeping a food diary so that I can keep track of how many calories I'm eating every day. It takes a lot of work. And I don't necessarily listen to the food diary when it tells me that I've reached the 1,800 calories a day and I should stop eating right. because I still may be hungry or I still may have a desire for the food in front of me. But one of the things that's being worked on, and this is, again, treatment for people who are morbidly obese, not treatment for the average person. But you can imagine that these technologies will become more safe and effective. Right. We've, we've got stomach pacemakers. So you can put this tiny device in a person's stomach and it will st uh, electrically stimulate the stomach so that it gives the person a feeling of satiety. They no longer feel hungry. And probably some people will be able to overcome that as well. But, uh, you know, <laughs> at least uh, that's, that does electrically what a stomach band does or a, a lap band does. Um, and then you can imagine, and this isn't being done yet, but you can very easily imagine that the same devices that are being used to measure blood sugar for diabetics, which are plugged into insulin pumps. So you, we have diabetics who have an, an internal glucometer that's immediately plugged into an insulin pump, and every time their blood sugar goes up or down, the insulin pump mod moderates how much insulin it's putting into their bloodstream. Well, that could also be tied into your stomach pump, so that at the end of the day, if your you know blood sugar or your whatever tells the computer that you've had enough to eat for that day, it turns off your appetite. Mm. So now this may not seem like you know how does this relate to the Buddhist Buddhist practice? Well. You know, for many of us, the daily mundane uh, effort to get our lives under control is, in fact, what it's all about. When I when I became a parent, I've told people now for 14 years since <laughs> I became a parent, my principal religious practice is trying not to yell at my kids. You know, if, if there's if there's some kind of drug or technology that could get parents not to yell at their kids and and blow every single day, you know, blow not only the relationship with their kids but blow their mood every single day and their ability to sit down on that cushion and not fume for half an hour about their kids, then that would be you know an aid to spiritual practice. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out is ways that all of these technologies can reinforce living a, a stable, virtuous life. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it seems like really a lot of these technologies would help change some of the karmic, you know, habit patterns that we're all operating with and, and create the conditions for insight and, you know, states of, of clarity and calm to emerge. And that sounds like it could be totally useful in the Buddhist path. Most people want to be better than they ca they're capable of being. You know, willpower, is that's one of the paramitas, by the way, is... Mm. I forget which one it is. I'm looking here at my list of paramitas. But one of the paramitas is willpower, um, virya, I think, uh, energy, determination, diligence. And most of us would like to have that kind of willpower to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to yell at my kids today. I'm not going to eat the Twinkie today. I'm, I'm going to meditate every single day. And uh, our ability to, to kind of bind ourselves to our highest aspirations, I think, is what is going to be enabled. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, 
abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.